Welcome back everybody to The Luke Beasley Show. We have a fascinating set of stories to get into today. I'm really looking forward to every single one, so let's go ahead and jump into the first. Herschel Walker, ladies and gentlemen, has been exposed, exposed for his hypocrisy and his lies. All of this is incredible. You have to continue watching for every bit of it. It's crazy. So the first big story that I want to get into, and then we'll get into the second one in a different segment for our YouTube viewers. But the first one is that the Daily Beast has revealed Herschel Walker, someone who pretends to be the most pro-life person ever, paid his girlfriend in the past in 2009 to get an abortion. Now, I'm someone who's supportive of people's reproductive freedoms. I'm someone who would have supported his right to do that and his decision to do that as long as his girlfriend was on board with it as well. But he is not. He wants to take away people's rights. He wants to take away people's ability to make that decision about themselves, about their body, about their lives, all of those things. And he is a staunch supporter of the pro-life position. He says there should be no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. So it's just another example. We've seen plenty of these with many pro-life people of the hypocrisy. They don't want that policy with themselves, but they want it on everyone else, or they want to pretend they believe this certain set of beliefs for their political uh, benefit. So that's the first story. That's what we're talking about right now. It's crazy. And then in the next segment for our YouTube viewers, if you're just tuning into this, the second the video comes up on YouTube and it hasn't yet given an hour for the second video to come out, just hold and then tune in that second one. If you're watching it after an hour of the video being out, then you'll be able to back to back watch the second one. And just to give you a sneak peek, the second story in relation to Herschel Walker is about his son coming out and exposing him for being a liar, saying he's done uh, covering for his dad and he wants people to know how much of a dishonest person his dad is. And so we'll talk about that again in the next segment. But first, reading from the Daily Beast about this wild abortion-related story. Herschel Walker, the football legend now running for Senate in Georgia, says he wants to completely ban abortion, likening it to murder and claiming there should be no exception for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. But the Republican candidate has supported at least one exception for himself. A woman who asked not to be identified out of privacy concerns told the Daily Beast that after she and Walker conceived a child while they were dating in 2009, he urged her to get an abortion. The woman said she had the procedure and that Walker reimbursed her for it. She supported these claims with a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card from Walker, and a bank deposit receipt that included an image of a signed $700 personal check from Walker. Guys, that is bringing receipts in this type of uh, reporting. The woman said there was a $125 difference because she ballparked the cost of an abortion after Googling the procedure and added on expenses such as travel and recovery costs. Additionally, the Daily Beast independently corroborated details of the woman's claims with a close friend she told at the time and who, according to the woman and the friend, took care of her in the days after the procedure. So to give you a little summary as far as evidence they have, $575 receipt of the abortion clinic or from the abortion clinic uh, for the abortion, a get well card signed by Walker, and that will be shown to Walker on television in a clip we're about to get to whenever he gets confronted about this, a bank deposit receipt that includes an image of a $700 uh, personal check from Walker, and then a friend who took care of her who can confirm this. Wow. 
The woman said Walker, who was not married at the time, told her it would be more convenient to terminate the pregnancy, saying it was not the right time for him to have a child. It was a feeling she shared, but what she didn't know was that Walker had an out-of-wedlock child with another woman earlier that same year. Family values my you know what? <laughs> That's me, not the Daily Beast. Asked if Walker ever expressed regret for the decision the woman said Walker never had. Asked why she came forward. The woman pointed out, pointed to Walker's hardline anti-abortion position. I just can't with the hypocrisy anymore. She said, we all deserve better. I totally agree. And then the Daily Beast did reach out uh, to the Walker campaign and he has denied these claims. So that's his official denial to the Daily Beast. But then we'll see him going on Hannity right here and being confronted with all of this. It doesn't go well, guys. This is incredibly uncomfortable. Herschel Walker not successfully getting through this unscathed. But uh, take a look. Well, here with reaction, Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker. Let's start with the Daily Beast, Herschel. I mean, serious accusations that in 2009 that you paid for an abortion. First question, do you know the woman that is making this allegation? I have no, no idea, but it is a flat out lie. And, uh, and now you know how important this seat is. This seat is very important that they do. Okay, let's stop there. We're going to go through this whole clip because it's just incredible. But we got to start by saying, what? <laughs> he goes, do you know who this woman is? And he goes, I have no idea. Later, he'll say, listen, I send get well soon cards to our all sorts of people. I send money to all sorts of people. So he doesn't deny that those uh, evidence were real. He just says, I just sent them for some other reason. So you don't know at all if you know who this woman is, but you were sending her get well soon cards. I'm confused. Anything to win this seat, lie, because they want to make it by everything else except what the true problems that we have in this country is. This inflation, the border wide open, crime. They don't want to talk about that. Mm. So they're making up lies now because they need this Georgia seat. So I'm going to encourage anyone out there, let's not let them take this seat. Let, if you can go to teamherschel.com, let's not let them take this seat because if they take this seat. So to be clear, him being exposed as a massive hypocrite is the reason that you should support his campaign more, according to Herschel Walker. We won't recognize this country tomorrow because right now for them to come out with total lies, I think well, that's not right. Let me ask you this. So they're claiming that on September 12th of 2009 that the woman has a receipt for an abortion. They're claiming that five days... Look at him, he's just smiling. You know some aide told him, try to smile while you're on television while you get confronted with these things. Later on September 17th, you sent a $700 check and that you sent it in a get well card. The get well card, it looks like it's included with your signature on in the article. Have you seen it? And is that your signature? Uh, I haven't seen it, uh, but you know, I can tell you, uh, I sent out so many get well, uh, send out so much of anything, but I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. What? <laughs> What are you doing? Come on. You are running for Senate. Your team has to have the ability to prepare you better for going on national television to refute these claims, even if you're going to do it in a dishonest manner. He goes, listen, I, I send money. I send all sorts of things, all sorts of places. I send get well soon cards to everyone. Hmm. Okay. Abortion. I never paid for an abortion, and it's a lie. And I'm going to continue to fight. You know, I tell you, that's what they want. They want this seat 
But right now, they've energized me even more. And they're not going to take the seat. So they better work it even harder because they've jeopardized my kids. They've jeopardized my family. They think they can threaten me. They think they can scare me. Right now, all that done is it's energized me more that I'm going to fight and win this seat for the great people of Georgia because... Now, I do want to say, too, his denial of these accusations means even less because not too long ago, within the same campaign, he was confronted with information about him having other kids that he had never made public. And he went, no, that's not true. And then it got proven. He went, okay, yeah, I have those kids, but no, none, none other. And then more got revealed. And he was like, okay, yeah, I have those kids too. So he doesn't really have the most honest track record. To have someone in the seat that lies to the people shouldn't be in the seat as a senator. What about the $700 check? Is there anybody you can remember sending that much money to? Well, I, I send money to a lot of people, and that's what's so funny. And, and let's go back to my part. You know, I, I do scholarship for kids. I give money to people all the time because I'm always helping people. Be- <laughs> okay. So he's just sending money all over the place. Who knows? Uh, and he won't address any of the other pieces of ed- evidence. It's incredible, guys. It is so, so incredible and i feel like honestly the only piece of evidence that would make this any more hard to refute would be him filming a video back then saying hey i'm a herschel walker here's me signing a document saying that i'm actually saying this statement and guess what if i ever happen to run for senate in the future and pretend to be pro-life and claim that this never happened it actually happened that would be the only thing with all the evidence that the daily beast uh provided Wow, wow, wow. So I'm going to take this as an opportunity to plug something. But in the next segment, as I mentioned, for our YouTube viewers, go find it on my channel. Again, if this video just came out, give me an hour and then it'll come out. Um, but don't leave yet because I want to plug in relation to this uh, my Patreon. So the reason why is people right now who are watching this on my Patreon, they get the full show hours before any of the clips are uploaded to YouTube. So for them, it'll go straight into the next story. They get the entire show and same thing with our podcast listeners. But patreon.com slash Luke Beasley, it is hugely beneficial for me, allowing me to uh, run the show, all that type of stuff. So again, patreon.com slash Luke Beasley, where you will get the full show every single day, hours before any of the clips get uploaded to YouTube. And it's relevant to this story because in this example, you would be getting the next story right now. We talked previously about Herschel Walker getting exposed for having the abortion paid for or paying for an abortion for a girlfriend that he had in 2009, even though he pretends that he's the most pro-life person ever. And as I previously said, I support people's right to get an abortion. I support people's reproductive freedoms. He does not. He is actively fighting against women having those rights. And so it is massively hypocritical. Well, in the same day that that story came out, his son, largely in response to this story, has just completely had enough and has called him a liar and has put out this video revealing his true feelings towards his father. Take a look. I stayed silent as the atrocities committed against my mom were downplayed. I stayed silent when it came out that my father, Herschel Walker, had all these random kids across the country, none of whom he raised. And you know my favorite issue to talk about is father absence. Surprise, because it affected me. 
That's why I talk about it all the time, because it affected me. Family values, people. He has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? And interestingly enough, his son, as he even alluded to, stayed silent or publicly supported his father in all of this up until now. But it seems like he's just had enough. And his son is actually very, very conservative. So this isn't him trying to fight for his political side. His son's very conservative. If you look at any social media content, it's super, super anti-liberal and anti-left and all that. But yet still, he's had enough with his father's lies. I have a silent lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the card. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter. He lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. And so for the right to say I'm being suspicious for saying, hey, I'm, I'm done with the lies, when you all have been calling me saying, is this true about your dad? Gosh, we're not going to win Georgia, this candidate. That's been you. You have no idea what I've been through in my life. You have no idea what me and my mom have survived. We could have ended this on day one. We haven't. I haven't told any stories. I'm just saying, don't lie. Don't lie on my mom. Don't lie on me. Don't lie on the lives you've destroyed and act like you're some moral family man. Y'all should care about that, conservatives. And then for people on the left to act as though I'm responsible for all of the things that he has done. I've talked about father episodes. I've talked all these issues because they've been close to me. Yeah, I don't know what that's in relation to. I haven't seen people saying he's responsible. If they have, that's kind of dumb. No, kids aren't responsible for the actions of their father. But uh, we'll let them continue. Because they matter to me, because I went through it. That's why I've talked about it. So when you say, well, talk about your dad, but I am. I'm saying this behavior is atrocious. Don't come for me. You don't have to like my father. You don't have to like me. You don't have to. I'm just saying I'm done with the lies. We were told at the beginning of this, he was going to get ahead of his past, hold himself accountable, all of these different things, and that would have been fine. Go ahead. He didn't do any of that. Everything's been a lie. Everything's been downplayed. Everything's been cutting corners. The whole thing. And who, who is, whose expense is that at? Me, my mom, as we're chased down by the media, uh, we're, we're terrorized, all these different things. Uh, uh, people are questioning my authenticity. I'm done. Don't lie. Don't put this on me. You, this is a candidate issue, not a me issue. I wouldn't have spoken out if there weren't all these lies every day. Wow. That is incredible. Uh, it takes a lot to speak out against your own father in this context, especially because he previously stomached the uh, action of supporting his father publicly. He was posting things saying, I'm so proud of my dad for running for Senate. And I think part of it is, as he said in that video, he felt like if his dad really was going to try to get ahead of his past, it be kind of this story of someone getting better and then trying to work to help other people's lives. Maybe that was something he could deal with, but that's not what happened in this campaign. Herschel Walker lies and lies and lies as his son, uh, Christian Walker identified. That's incredible. But as I started to say, it is a big deal for a family member to go out that publicly against their father. And interestingly enough, this son is the only uh, son that Herschel Walker publicly was kind of 
allowing people to know was his son for the longest time or actually had some sort of relationship with, even though he's saying that he still was absent. And he even is having to speak out and saying that there's so much that Herschel Walker has been dishonest about within this campaign and all the things that he did to, to, uh, Christian Walker's mother and then lied about in the campaign and all of this. And it seemed like this was the straw that broke the camel's back, the story about the, uh, abortion, but not just the story, the fact that immediately Herschel Walker came out and lied about it. Immediately he, as we watched in the previous segment, looked at, uh, the American people through the camera on Fox News and said, this is a complete lie. Whenever there's just, there's no way you can hold to that with the amount of evidence that was brought forward in this Daily Beast article. And so this is huge. I really hope this takes down Herschel Walker's candidacy because someone who has his own son speaking out against him, who has been exposed for all these lies, who is a clear hypocrite and doesn't have any ability to communicate policy positions and the few that he can communicate are not good should not be running for senate should not have any chance of winning and we've talked about polling recently there's some polls that had him above his uh opponent Raphael Warnock who is very qualified to be in that seat now it's looking a little bit better right now but we'll see how this affects those poll numbers because Herschel Walker should not be a viable candidate after all of this. He shouldn't have been before, please. But this should absolutely take him down. Conservatives, as Christian Walker said there, if you really care about these values you pretend to believe in, then you need to hold those running within your party accountable whenever they don't at all uphold those values or believe in those values in any genuine or significant way. Incredible, uh, incredible stuff. The trial has begun for the Oath Keepers. So the Oath Keepers is this far-right uh, militia organization that was very present at January 6th and has this belief of trying to start a civil war and all these things and wanted to do some significant violence on January 6th. And so we've heard a lot about them through the January 6th committee and all these things, but then we knew in the background the legal process was going on. And because they didn't take a plea deal, none of those things, they took it to trial. And now we have a very fascinating set of circumstances within that. So we'll take a look at this um, and then look at some reporting, people speaking about what has been going on in that trial. Five members of the Oath Keepers facing charges of seditious conspiracy, and this is reading from ABC News, concocted a plan for an armed rebellion to shatter a bedrock of American democracy. A federal prosecutor said Monday in opening statements at the D.C. District Court, kicking off the high-stakes first trial for members of the far-right militia group. So sedition is the umbrella term we use, but they're being charged with seditious conspiracy. That's what they're being tried for. And that's a huge deal. That's a big thing to prove. Anything sedition related is huge, but I think it applies. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nestler told jurors, the defendants, including Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes, along with members, and then it lists their names, banded together to do whatever was necessary to stop the transfer of power between Donald Trump and then President-elect Joe Biden, and that they saw U.S. Congress certification of the Electoral College as their perfect opportunity. In addition to their alleged involvement in the January 6th assault on the Capitol, the Oath Keepers members 
conspired to stage an arsenal of firearms, including multiple semi-automatic rifles at a hotel just outside of Washington, D.C., and multiple teams of so-called quick reaction forces, with Caldwell even plotting uh, for ways to potentially uh, ferry weapons into the city by boat across the Potomac River in case they were called on, the prosecution alleged. So they were planning to be at the Capitol, but then to have all these weapons stashed so that if they were called on, and as we've seen before, they were expecting to be called on by Trump to start a massive assault. Now, this is a coup attempt. That is what that is. And that's why they're being charged with seditious conspiracy, because they were ready and were preparing to overthrow the government, to keep Trump in power, to overthrow a lawful uh, process. So here is a MSNBC contributor talking a little bit about what was going on in the first day of the trial. And four other members of the extremist group are facing seditious conspiracy charges. It is the most serious trial of any January 6th defendant to date. If convicted, these people will face 20 years in prison. All five of them, all five Oath Keepers, have pleaded not guilty. Joining me now from outside the courthouse is NBC's Ryan Riley. So, Ryan, I'm curious about the opening statements from the defense today. The AP was reporting. So we'll look at the breakdown of the defense, and then we'll look in a second here about some tidbits from the prosecution's opening statement. Uh, that Stuart Rhodes's lawyers were going to start arguing that Donald Trump was, I guess, essentially the one who was responsible for this. Yeah, Donald Trump is really looming over this entire trial, and essentially what Stuart Rhodes's uh, lawyers are going to argue is that all of this he believed, Stuart Rhodes believed, was in some ways legal because he was waiting on an order essentially from Donald Trump to take any action. Uh, we're going to hear from one of the defendants who has already pleaded guilty previously um, about this alleged phone call on the night of January 6th in which uh, Stuart Rhodes was trying to reach Donald Trump directly and was talking to some sort of Trump intermediary. I thought what was really compelling about the opening arguments from the government today was that they revealed this new audio. We've seen a lot of text messages from the Oath Keepers, but they trotted out this new audio that was recorded a few days after January 6th that features Stuart Rhodes. And, you know, it sort of debunks, I suppose, a lot of what the defense is trying to roll out now, because on that audio tape, Stuart Rhodes said that his only regret about January 6th is that they didn't bring rifles. And indeed, the government says that rifles were stationed outside of uh, the District of Columbia in Virginia at a hotel there, uh, ready for action, essentially a quick reaction force uh, that was ready in case Donald Trump Trump called upon them and invoked the Insurrection Act. And so we'll read more about that audio that he spoke of in a second here um, that was shown by the prosecution um, in this first day of the trial. Um, but as was broken down there, it's interesting that part of the defense is them attempting to cast the blame on Donald Trump because these people were ride or die Trumpsters, but then they talked to their lawyer and realized the way out of this may be, I was just trying to follow Trump's orders. It's not my fault, which it's true that that's what they were trying to do, but it doesn't mean that they're not someone who needs to be held accountable as well. And a huge line from that audio that uh, they played, the prosecutors did uh, at the trial that is just so scary is my only regret is that they should... Uh, is that they should have brought rifles, said in that audio by Rhodes, um, which is just showing that they brought rifles to D.C. to be a quick reaction force. They didn't bring it to the actual Capitol on January 6th. And he said, that was my biggest regret. I wish that we had um, done that. 
which just shows you that he wished that they could have done um, more violence than they even did, which is incredible. And then here is another MSNBC contributor talking about the prosecution's opening statements. Michael Palian started testifying yesterday and he is still on the stand today. He's still in direct examination from the prosecutor, Catherine Ricosi. And it seems like we're going to move into cross-examination pretty soon here. But what he is doing is he is kind of building an evidentiary. Or the beginning, the first day of the prosecution's actions. Foundation brick by brick. It can actually be a little tedious, but what he's presenting to the jury is message after message, 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 text messages, uh, signal chats where these co-conspirators, these oath keepers are talking with one another in the, the run up to January 6th. And what he's doing is he's making it clear to the jury that there was a lot of planning that went into what the oath keepers did on January 6th, including stocking up weapons, a veritable arsenal in a motel just across the river from where we are in Virginia, ready to be deployed when and if necessary on January 6th. And okay, I will stop it there. And again, highlighting that very troubling part of it where they were preparing what they called quick reaction forces or something um, to be ready to, at Trump's direction, inflict a lot of damage and violence um, on whoever stood in the way of Trump being kept in power. That's incredible. Okay, and then here is uh, more information, as I mentioned, about this audio that was revealed at the first day of trial, um, kind of revealing the planning that was going on here. Federal prosecutors played audio recording in court on Tuesday of an alleged November 2020 Oath Keepers planning meeting that discussed plans to bring weapons to Washington, D.C. and prepared to fight on behalf of former President Donald Trump. And this is reading from CNN. The meeting lasted about two hours and was secretly recorded by an attendee. The attendee, Palin said, sent a tip to the FBI later uh, that month, but was not contacted by the agents. And then he reached out again and they got in communication with one another. The recording, which is primarily of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes, is the first major piece of evidence that prosecutors have used to establish a plan by the far-right group to allegedly descend on Washington and oppose the transfer of power. We're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight, Rhodes said, in the recording played in court. But let's just do it smart, and let's do it while President Trump is still commander-in-chief. And there's much more there uh, if you want to look into it, but there was a premeditated effort to be ready to stand in the way of the lawful transition of power. And they believed that they were doing it at Trump's direction. Now, we know um, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable. That doesn't mean that it's not their fault as well. They are independent human beings who can make their own decisions. But it does show you the damage that Trump's rhetoric did. And then it also indicates to us how many of these very scary far-right groups are prevalent in our country. We've talked about many of them, but the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys are two that were very uh, prominent on January 6th. So there it is, day one of trial of the Oath Keepers. We will continue to follow it because I do think it's interesting and important that these people are held accountable. There are protests going on in Iran as we speak, and I want to talk about this because not only is it important what they're protesting specifically, but then also the kind of larger movement that has developed around this particular event they're protesting and how this could be 
an indication that progress is on the horizon in Iran, which is something that I definitely want for the Iranian people. That government is very brutal. Um, and so that would be incredible because they are calling for a change of regime. That's what a lot of the protesters are pushing for. Um, and all these things. So to give you the uh, specifics in Iran, they have something that's the morality police and they have a law called the hijab law where women have to wear their hijabs. And so these morality police go around and make sure that women are doing that. And a woman by the name of Masa Amini got taken into custody because she was violating this hijab law. And at some point while she was in custody, she got incredible uh, blows to the head and ended up dying. Now, the Iranian government's going to deny this, of course, that it was them who did something wrong and caused her to die. But it's pretty clear that she died because they brutalized her. All because she wasn't wearing a head covering. Guys, this is incredible. Um, and so because of that, protests erupted. And um, take a look at some of this very, very women-led, lots of women who aren't wearing their hijabs, who are advocating for their own rights, um, but again, all inspired by this one woman's uh, death. So just a few moments there to give you um, kind of a visual depiction there. And then here is a little bit about the security forces, the Iranian law enforcement's response to this that has been um, severe. Iran's security forces have a history of using violence and brutality to suppress dissent. In many instances, authorities have shot protesters on the streets. Amnesty International has said that at least 52 people have been killed since the start of the protests, noting that the death toll is likely much higher. Videos captured men in military fatigues using uh, assault rifles in protest areas, as well as the sound of sustained bursts of automatic rifle fire breaking up crowds. Very brutal. People are getting hurt. Um, and that's bad. Absolutely. And then just one more little detail here, um, from desert, desert news. Yes. Desert news. The enormous mass public demonstrations in Iran could bring a change in regime. The fundamentalist Islamic rulers of the nation must be worried. A large number of cities across the country are experiencing the ongoing protests, though estimates of just how many may vary. And then it dives into the specifics that we already talked about. So again, huge protests going on um, across Iran and all these different cities. And it's pretty huge, pretty historic, um, inspired uh, by that individual who was killed in police custody because she was not wearing her hijab. So incredible stuff. Um, and we're thinking of the Iranian people for sure. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said that she might be taking legal action against Twitter for what? Violating her freedom of speech because presumably they suspended her, banned her. Um, Wow. So we're going to watch this. And then I want to discuss, because this is a common thing. Oh, whenever I get banned, it's a violation of my freedom of speech. And just kind of discuss the specifics of that and some things that I think are relevant in relation to that talking point. You take some legal action as a private citizen. Yes, I've already talked to an attorney. I, I spoke with him last week, John, because I believe 
these these are uh, it, it's it's a complete violation of my freedom of speech. I was a private citizen and I'm owed damages. They have no right to do this to me. Um, I just need to find out how many people I need to name on lawsuits and, and the social media companies. I've had enough of it. You know, I'm the only sitting member of Congress that had my personal account permanently banned by Twitter for so-called COVID misinformation. You take some legal action as a private. So, wow. Marjorie Taylor Greene suing uh, over not being <laughs> allowed on Twitter. So, okay. What is the relevance of this in a larger sense? A lot of people use that talking point that you getting suspended or having a post taken down or you being banned and in her case permanently is a violation of your freedom of speech. And I want you to know before I say what I'm about to say that I recognize it has become the place where people talk, where they share their views and all of those things. And so it's important to discuss what should the lines be. Uh, it is very upsetting when you do have your account suspended or banned, all those things, absolutely. And we'll discuss where we should draw those lines in a second. But first, in a technical sense, everyone needs to be aware. It is not true and why she is not going to have any chance of this lawsuit going anywhere that it's a violation of your First Amendment to not be allowed on a social media site. That is so untrue, it hurts me physically. I'm in physical pain hearing that level of uh, illogic. Is that even a noun? But here's why. The First Amendment outlines what Congress, what the government can and can't do. So the government cannot violate your ability to speak. The government cannot take away your First Amendment right or, or your freedom of speech. That is true. That is 100% true. And if Congress was making laws that prevented Marjorie Taylor Greene from having a Twitter account, now that's a different question. Or if Congress was making laws saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene couldn't say certain things, that's a different question. That would be in the First Amendment box. Twitter is a private company. Twitter is like a business. Uh, that you would walk into in person. And businesses that you would walk into in person have rules when you go in. Now, just like how if you walk into a store on Main Street to get a t-shirt and they can't discriminate against you based on certain things, your race, your religion, uh, I don't think Twitter would be able to do that either and they shouldn't be able to and that would be horrible and all those things. But just banning you because you violated their terms of service, because you spread certain types of information that they've deemed dangerous enough where they're going to take it off of their platform, that is just like you walking into a store and being told you have to wear a t-shirt. No shirt, no shoes, no service. That's the policies that a private company gets to have in a legal sense. Okay. Now, does that mean they're the same in a societal effect sense? No. And that's where you get into the conversation of where should we draw these lines now that social media has become so incredibly significant within the way in which we communicate and the voice in which we're allowed to have. And that's a very nuanced and fascinating conversation. I think there are some instances where people should be taken off of platforms when they're doing dangerous enough things. But I recognize right now the policies can be a little loosey-goosey and they're not very transparent. And so people will get banned for reasons they don't know why, or there will be a kind of censor campaign and a bunch of people will report someone even when they haven't actually done something worthy of getting banned. And 
the, the certain platform will ban the person anyways because they got enough reports, whatever. There's so many changes that need to be made, but people need to understand in a technical legal sense, there's no connection between Twitter banning Marjorie Taylor Greene and her First Amendment right. And it's a little bit concerning that as a congresswoman who should be familiar with the laws and familiar with the fact that the First Amendment refers to what Congress, or I think it could be expanded the uh, sentiment towards the government, even though it uses the word Congress, uh, what they can do, not what a private company that can have its own terms of service can do. So it's a clear distinction. This is why her lawsuit will go nowhere. But it's not to say that censorship isn't a big deal, that we shouldn't socially and societally get more uh, clear on where we want those lines to be so that no one is disproportionately hurt within the political world or whatever. Um, but I think you need to understand that. I think everyone who makes uh, that point over and over needs to understand that and they don't because it it's good for them politically to pretend like they're being uh completely targeted their first amendment right and they're such a victim and blah de blah de blah now congressman eric swalwell and congresswoman ilan omar put out an, inc an incredible attack ad against kevin mccarthy that you have to see and this is a type of rhetoric that we should see from democrats all the time it is incredible let's take a look Kevin McCarthy, you want to talk about law and order? Okay, let's talk. Bakersfield. And this is in the wake of him putting out this Commitment to America plan where he does focus a lot on crime, law and order, and so they're kind of addressing that specific point. The heart of your congressional district is now ranked at the top 10 most dangerous metro areas in America. Your own sheriff said, we know we have a violent crime issue. Kevin, your district has been the murder capital of California for five years in a row. And if you're so concerned about crime, why did you vote against $350 billion in funding for law enforcement? Every Democrat voted for it. When Democrats passed a bipartisan bill to fund local police departments, you didn't even bother casting a vote. Kevin, if you really want to talk about crime, Let's start with your own party, because it sure seems like you and your MAGA pals are fine with certain crimes. Crimes like stealing top-secret nuclear files, attacking the nation's capital, assaulting police officers, attempting to overthrow an election, not to mention the little stuff like tax and bank fraud. The truth is, Kevin, you aren't anti-crime, and neither is your party. You and your fellow Republicans are just trying to scare voters playing politics while leaving it to Democrats to actually work for the safety of Americans. Everyone can see. You're not pro-cop, Kevin McCarthy. You're pro-coup. Woo! That is good stuff. So, tapping into an issue that the voters of the person you're going after cares about, right? So for Kevin McCarthy, the reason why he talks much about crime is because people, uh, presumably in his district, care a lot about that. And so then they highlight, listen, you've been a congressman and haven't improved the conditions in your district like you should have or like you claim to be trying to. And on the specific issue that you're trying to highlight Democrats for being bad on, your district ranks horribly. What have you been doing to actually improve uh, you know, the, the, 
reality on the ground in regard to crime. And they list specific examples where, and we see this so often, the Democratic Party actually puts up legislation to try to fund more or invest in or do different things to lower crime or support law enforcement or whatever. And oftentimes Republicans don't even support those things. And then they go out and talk about how it's the Democrats who want to defund the police, right? And uh, they went hard on that issue and gave specific examples. And then they talked about Donald Trump, the person that you sick up to day after day, is an alleged huge criminal. All these different investigations going on into him. And then you cover for the actions of what happened on January 6th. And you pretend to be pro-law enforcement while you were, again, covering, perpetuating talking points that cover for the assaulting and um, aggressive actions towards law enforcement on January 6th. And I just love that. I just love the way they laid that out. I wish the Democratic Party was that effective all the time. And the other big part about this is don't run away from these issues. If Republicans want to talk a bunch about crime, you lean into it. Like we saw Gavin Newsom highlight the highest crime rates. When you list the top 10 highest crime rate states, red states, eight out of 10 of them. Boom. Eight out of 10 of the top 10 highest crime rate states are Republican states. And so you can talk about these issues and win on them and not just ignore the lies that Republicans spread about the reality on the ground. And I think they did a really good job of exposing him in many ways on that. Really loved it. Um, hopefully we see more of that going into the midterms, which is incredibly close, a month away. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.